Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Gregory Piero, an associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut. He is on to discuss his new book, The Black Avengers in Atlantic Culture, published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Most definitely, most definitely. And so, um, you know, once again, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the program. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure reading your book and uh, uh, learning um, about, you know, the Black Avenger, right? You know, we're in a time where, you know, it, it's a really, uh, you know, historically, it's obviously, it's obviously been uh, an important trope, but um, you know, with the last couple of years in, in pop culture and such, it's really been a, uh, I don't know if renaissance would be the right word, but it's something <laughs> to say the least. So uh, thank you for coming on. And so um, can you talk to us about how you came to this project? Uh, yes, um, it was sort of a long process, but I'm sure it will speak to other grad students that might be listening. Um, and part of it is a really long arc. Um, I'm, I'm French West Indian. Uh, my mother's from the, from Martinique. I grew up in France, uh, in a place where, uh, West Indian history is not really, uh, talked about very much to, to put it mildly. Um, so this was something I sort of discovered on my own, uh, in my teenage years and sort of got interested in. But as a major in American literature, this wasn't something I, I really expected to, to study uh, as a grad student. But when I went to grad school, um, I took a class with uh, Dr. Youngquist, shout out, uh, in Black mm-hmm. Romanticism. Um, and for that class, I, I wrote a paper that ended up be- becoming a, an article, the first article I published in grad school. And it was about the representations of Toussaint Louverture in, um, in English news and, and media of the you know, uh, early, late 18th, early 19th century. Um, working on that project sort of uh, led me to connect dots, uh, let's say. I, um, I used to consider myself a 20th century literature person. Uh, <laughs> I might not be <laughs> obvious from the book. Yeah. Uh, but so this is you know, working on this specific project sort of, uh, yeah, helped me connect certain dots and look at certain arcs and, and consider things I was very familiar with, um, you know, movies and, and books and, and pop culture from the 60s and sort of look at them um, across a longer time period. And that's sort of when I started thinking about looking at just how far this figure that I started recognizing uh, could reach, uh, basically. So that that's sort of how I got started. Interesting. And, and so, you know, um, I posted on Twitter uh, last week about a, uh, a round table um, from, uh, I think it was uh, at the Carnegie Woodson uh, Center at, at UVA that was attended by yes. you and um, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Laurent Dubois and, and, and um, 
Marlena uh, Dowd as well. Um, I think that was yeah, and Julia Gafford, right, Mm -hmm. right. Um, And so it was a really, you know, a a phenomenal. I was literally on the way to church, um, you know, that Sunday, and so I was literally like reading, uh, listening to the discussion, uh, my fifty-five minute uh, drive to church, and so your discussion Uh was really illuminating and um, really was a great uh, 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 segue for me from you know reading. Uh, uh, your book and listening to the discussion to our, our discussion here today. Um, and so, you know, uh, y'all were talking about the, was it the, the anniversary of, um, uh, of uh, Laurent's uh, uh, book that came out uh, as well. Was it the 20, was it, was it 25th? What, what was the number? 15. Oh my God. Dating it, dating it. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's probably a classic. So we'll add another ten years to it uh, at some point too. Um, but um, but but nevertheless, um, it was a great discussion. And so, can you talk uh, a bit about maybe uh, that the, that book's uh, potential influence in, in your text too? Yes, uh, and and this is a book I I believe I first read it right around when I started working on on the article I mentioned. Uh, so it's called Adventures of the New World and its uh, History of the Haitian Revolution. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the, in the video, and I'm not going to rehearse the whole thing, <laughs> but uh, it is definitely one of the, one of the books that, that helped me connect those dots I mentioned. And, um, I sort of joke about it in the video, but I mean it a hundred percent. Um, you know, the first time I saw that title, I couldn't help but think about, you know, Marvel's adventures. Um, I grew up reading comic books, um, and, you know, I sort of, you know, before I read it, I thought, you know, I was aware of, uh, of the, the Haitian Revolution. Uh, I'd read Theodore James before. Um, but I sort of started thinking, well, you know, well, what if the, the heroes of the Haitian Revolution were all superheroes? You know, uh, I mean, you know, just as a sort of, you know, funny thought experiment. But then, you know, there was something of that anyway, right? I mean, I would argue that there is something of that in sort of heroic characterization of, of historical figures anyway. Um, it can be more or less, you know, uh, exaggerated, I guess. But I, I think, you know, most of the people who have, um, let's say, who are moved, uh, let's say, by the Haitian Revolution, uh, it's easy to fall back on that, right? To, to think of them in this sort of bigger-than-life way. And, you know, arguably there were, uh, you know, you know, I mean, they, they did great things and uh, against all odds. I mean, there, there's much to be said about this. But part of what I was also considering is, well, what does it say that we so easily, you know, turn regular people into into superheroes, basically? Um, the book itself, Dubois, uh, Laurent Dubois' book, doesn't quite go there. Uh, but it did help me consider um, what if if there actually was a line between Marvel's, you know, uh, Avengers and the Avengers of the New World, but what, what might that line be? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm a literature scholar. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty historical book, but I'm, I really studied literature. So I, I thought of it in terms of, uh, of narrative and, uh, and tropes and, you know, what kind of, uh, how does one turn you know, history in two stories. And, and what you just talked about re- really is a great segue to my next question of what were the biggest challenges uh, uh, in, in writing uh, your book? Because, you know, you just highlighted a bit uh, just then about how, you know, as a literature scholar, you know, you're writing a lot of things that are uh, genre bending, uh, you know. Um, and so can you talk to us about 
um, any potential challenges that you had while either constructing, uh, kind of like the 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 not kind of not the thematic way, but more so the organizational way of your book as well. Um, I would say the biggest challenge, and this might sound a, a little silly, maybe, but um, the biggest challenge I ended up facing was to decide how mm. to cut the book. Um, because, you know, as might be clear from, from what I've said even now, um, if, if I'd, had I, had I written the book I wanted to write, it, it would probably be, you know, 60, 700 <laughs> pages, I guess. Uh, because really my, my original goal was to go all the way to the 20th, if not 21st century. Um, because it made sense to me and there's much more to, to say about it. I, I stopped in 1915, um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's fairly symbolic year. It's the year of the the U.S. invasion of Haiti. Um, it's uh, is it the year mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm, invasion? Mm-hmm. I believe yep. it is. Uh, it's right around then. Um, I mean, and so, um, but this um, the ridiculous thing is just how long it took me to finally come up with with that time span. It literally took me over a year um, because I just you know, I felt like, well, I'm not doing justice to my own ideas. and But then, you know, nothing else was manageable. So, I mean, this actually took me a long time. And I'm, you know, I still think about it. <laughs> Maybe not every day, but at, at least once a week. Um, so, <laughs> so I don't know if that answers no, your no, question. No, no, no. It, that is the actual truth. No, and, and you definitely uh, answer the, the question well. And so um, it, it also makes me think a lot about, um, you know, your, your, your book is not only about, you know, the black Avenger, but it's also, you know, the, what context is it, is it constituted in? Right. And so you're putting it in to Atlantic, uh, culture. So the Atlantic world, um, and so can you talk to us about what, what are some of the foundational, um, you know, as a literature scholar, right? So, so what are the foundational texts to the black Avenger trope? Um, so it's that was another difficulty, of course, um, because you know, as as you know, you've, you've read the book. I start pretty mm-hmm. far. Um, I, I sort of present as as uh, uh, foundational figures uh, Lucretia uh, and Spartacus, right? So we're talking about antiquity, obviously, uh, but also a certain um, European culture. Um, I mean, there are things that you know, I could endlessly uh, critique my book. Uh, maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I <laughs> um, but you know, there are there are flaws to you know. I don't. I haven't looked into um, you know uh, into to you know African uh, sources or you know sources that might not relate with uh, directly to European culture in that way. Um, so you know that that's something I don't quite do. I also, you know, I haven't found many texts. Uh, I did, really didn't find. Uh, any not until later anyway in Spanish, uh, so I mostly look at English, American, French, and you know Caribbean texts. So you know that that's one limit I would say. But looking within that corpus, the line I draw is from um, uh, English uh, revenge drama from Elizabethan and Jacobian uh, period. Um, and so in those texts, um, I'm looking at at several. Um, some better known than others, but I'm really looking at, at certain figures that, that already keep coming back in, in early uh, revenge drama, and, and those are black villains. Uh, and it turns out there's 
quite a few of them. Um, I would say maybe one of the the, the better known ones uh, is Aaron from uh, uh, Titus Andronicus. Uh, you know, it's Shakespeare, so I'm assuming people might be familiar mm-hmm. with it. Uh, but this is a, a figure that we see, uh, you know, in variations already over, you know, quite often in in drama in revenge drama of the period. So what I do with the early text is that, you know, to me, the Black Avenger doesn't really show up until Afro Benz or Renoco, a 1688 uh, novella that many consider to be the first, you know, modern novel. Um, but, you know, what I do is present this figure uh, as really the sort of uh, result of um, the confrontation of, uh, you know, that revenge drama black villain character that already existed and the new circumstances brought about by England's involvement in the Atlantic slave trade. Um, so if we're going to talk about texts, I'm really using a line of texts uh, prior to the 17th century and Orinoco as sort of a, uh, you know, the first real black Avenger. And, you know, Orinoco is, is sort of used as a source for many things. Uh, what I hope the book shows is that even though, you know, I show him as a different kind of character, I, sh- I also, um, you know, he's not, the, he's not really the first, right? He's the first in the new mode and modern mode, but he's also coming from a very long line uh, of, of um, you know, characterizations. And, and you know, I had um, I had heard of Orinoco before, I believe, but it wasn't re- like mm-hmm. your your book uh, was the first one that made me think, all right, you know, it's it's been too long. You got to go. You got to go back to the 17th century and go and go read it. Um, and, and I'm on the way to doing that. Um, so, so, so thank you for, for the charge, uh, for, for, for that. Um, yeah, no, and, and, um, it's, and it's interesting too, because I've, I've, uh, with, with new books, I've typically done, you know, academic e-books and, and not, you know, novels, not novellas. And so like in, in the last couple of weeks, I've really been, you know, excited about, um, all the, um, all the novels that I've just bought, uh, because a lot of them were contemporary. And so they're within our, you know, time frame to be able to present them as new books to the listening audience. And I say that because I'm always interested mm-hmm. in how novelists write write histories. Uh, because in a way, for them to be hopefully somewhat historically accurate, they're, you know, they're they're basing it off of actual like primary source documents or they've been reading secondary works. Um, and so um that that's why I'm always interested in how uh, writers generally get to their particular topics and to get to their uh, and get into their constructions of books um, as well. And so with Orinoco, what you know, and you talked about Spartacus and how do um, how, how does the Black Avenger within the context of slavery, right? Because this is, you know, uh, uh, the slave trade is, you know, you know, bustling, you know, into this time and going into the 18th century. And so how does you know, slavery, how does the slave trade and how does, you know, I guess almost imagination play into uh, your work too within this particular time frame? Hmm, That's a complex question. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you, know, you can break it down, you, you know, you can break it down however you would like, okay. of course. Um, so, you know, one of the, the premises, I guess, of my argument is that these are very unique and new circumstances. And as much as people in the 17th century are familiar with, uh, with enslavement and, you know, and it's historically and in the present, um, I, I have a strong belief that they're also fully aware of how different this is. 
and you know, I might be going on a tangent here, but I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, downplaying argument that always pe- people always make about, you know, people being of their right. time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the record shows fairly well that, you know, people um, in countries that practiced uh, Atlantic slavery were fully aware of how uh, profoundly immoral that was. Uh, and in this sense, you know, and I mean also fully aware of how different that might be from other forms and prior forms of, of, of slavery. Um, that's my opinion. Um, and so the way I see it, um, the black Avenger trope is sort of a, uh, I call it an exorcism in, in some places. Uh, it, it serves two basic functions, right? It sort of makes slavery palatable in some way for, for the people reading it. It also exercises the sort of, uh, and I really do mean this as borderline magic, right? Uh, uh, you, you have clear awareness of the possibility of slave revolt. If anything, they know that's morally warranted. And I think the Black Avenger sort of uh, allows to keep it at bay in some way, you know, through through literature, right? So, there are actual slave revolts, they know about them, uh, but by sort of transcribing them into literature uh, and also always failing them, right? Every, you know, early on, all those revolts are shown to fail. Um, they sort of keep actual revolts at bay. I don't know if that, that makes sense. Culturally speaking, right? Of course, you mm-hmm. know, it's not mm-hmm. actual magic, right? This doesn't stop revolts. Uh, but by sort of like convincing yourself that this is the way it's going to go down, well, then you convince yourself that this is the way it's going to go down. Um, and what happens then through this figure is that, you know, we get this thing, and this is a trope that, you know, again, uh, I think it, it is useful for us in the 20th and 21st century because we still hear this all the time, which is that, you know, only an extraordinary person would manage to even start a fight against slavery. But it would fail because this would be just one out of 10,000 and it would be one extraordinary person surrounded by mediocre people. And this is the exorcism, if that makes sense, right? You convince yourself that they can never pull it off because even if you find that one guy, nobody will ever be worthy of him to follow him, right? Um, And so to me, it's important because this is sort of early cultural root for uh, scientific racism, basically. Uh, I think it serves very clear, you know, sort of, you know, uh, exorcist purposes, so to speak. Uh, but it also mm-hmm. is one of the first steps to saying, well, these are inferior people, right? That they're, they're not, you know, they're not quite human. And so it's really devious, to, you know, and, and, and might, it might seem, um, you know, self-contradictory because you have this main character who's always portrayed as very noble and sort of more, the, the most moral person you will ever meet, a very admirable person. Right? And you can read this as a white person in England's you know, 17th century and feel for that person. But in the process, you also get to, like him, sort of scorn the people that weren't good enough for him. And those people are slaves. Yeah, man. Now, it, it, it was... You know, you you definitely broke that down uh, incredibly Um, because, you know, when I was reading your book, I I just um, kept on going back to, you know, kind of like like you said, like using magic and and almost like the magical Negro um, in in this context Mm -hmm. and um, and and how specifically, you know, one of the bits that I think is important about your book and how it can be used. right? I think about your book in the context of like being in like a, a, 
black masculinity in Atlantic culture uh, kind of kind of course. Um, and mm-hmm. I say that because not only, you know, Atlantic culture is in your actual title, but how its uses and misuses. Um, and, and, and if I may, um, I say this because uh, I'm, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little uh, passage from your introduction that to me was one of the most profound, um, if, if you don't mind, of course. Um, no, yeah. So, so it's on page 12 and it's uh, the, the last paragraph uh, before your background. Um, and it reads, Laura uh, Doyle asserts that the Anglo-Saxon myth of freedom on display in Orinoco is the model by which later American myths of freedom, including African-American variations, were developed. I argue that, in fact, this myth was constructed as a prevention, a literary exorcism of sorts against the threat of a black nation. The narrator's citizenship comes about only to cancel out the possibility of citizenship for the enslaved, taking all of the novel's political ground and leaving none of it to the population whose political agency would most profoundly threaten the new American order. From Orinoco on, the silencing of the enslaved and their political agency is enabled specifically through the silencing of enslaved women. Ben's uh, narrative, or a narrator rather, raises Orinoco to a heroic pedestal and simultaneously unmans him, a piece of theater that deflects attention from a foundational phenomenon the silencing of Amoenda. If this book offers a a theatrical genealogy for the Black Avenger, it cannot do so without simultaneously excavating how the pattern of silencing and erasing Black femininity was built and normalized over four centuries in the crucible of the Atlantic, end quote. So that part to me was just like, whoa, like that, that not only the prose, of course, prose like, dude, you got you got you got a real real adept pen there, uh, but but also the 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 analytical work about the patterns pattern of silencing and erasing black femininity. Um, so as a way to uh, move into a new section of of our discussion, can you kind of talk about that particular passage and also you know the the work that you're doing within it, talking about uh, the silencing and erasing of black femininity within the trope of the black adventure. Yes. Um, so this was a question I ha- asked myself when I was working on this, but that also other people asked me, um, where, where are the women? Um, you know, are there women Avengers? Um, are, are there women in those texts? Um, and, and, you know, uh, early on it felt as if uh, I was derelict in, in my duty, right? Like, where did I not find those texts? Uh, but then, of course, this is a very, very masculine character. Um, and so knowing this still did not quite, uh, you know, solve the issue, right? Just because there are no women there doesn't mean you don't, you shouldn't talk about it. That's obviously an issue or at least part of the, the problem uh, that must be discussed. Um, and I think it's, you know, one, you know, one and the same thing. Um, just, you know, as a tangent, uh, one of the, the striking texts that, that I thought w- was interesting that I could not discuss because it's from the, the 1980s uh, is uh, Dessa Rose by uh, Charlene Williams. Uh, this would be the most obvious example of a, you know, a female black Avenger in a way uh, that I could find. And interestingly enough, part of what she does in, in the novel is riffing of, uh, you know, the accounts of... Um, um, Confessions of Nap Turner and other better known texts about, 
you know, male Avenger. Um, very different things happen also in, in the novel, right? Um, people don't die the same way. Uh, people don't kill or get revenge the same way, it turns out. Um, and that's something about, you know, the very idea of revenge and the way it tends to play out um, with masculine, very masculine uh, characters, like, like, like we've mentioned, that sort of uh, forecloses conversations. You know, it's always the same, the same thing, if you will. Uh, it's very historical. It's very heroic. It's all about war and killing and suffering. And it says absolutely nothing about what people do most of the time, which is to live and survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, the question then became, well, what of those people in those states? Where are they? Uh, they're, you know, often scorned, as I mentioned earlier, right? People who choose life over over war, uh, uh, you know, by those very characters sort of uh, looked down on. But then there are also female characters that very uh, routinely are reduced to being silent and sort of standing around and serving as a pretext and quite literally, right? Very often uh, what you see, you see a pattern of uh, revenge being directly connected to uh, the the assault and rape of these women who are not even allowed most of the in most of those texts I'm looking at not even allowed to speak about uh, their own assault. Um, so you know I'm, I'm sort of all over the place here, but um, you know I, I sort of try to to think and, and consider how those two patterns uh, crisscross and are really you know part you know they, they they're not separate patterns, right? They really are the same thing, or at least participate in the same. Um, sort of trends of characterization. Like there, there's no, um, you know, extreme masculinity like this without, you know, saying something about the place of, of not, not femininity, the place of women in, in, in the world you're creating. And it's, and it, like I said, like that part to me was just so, so interesting. Um, and, 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 and what you just did just there as well, um, you know, just highlighting, um, you know, kind of like what your thoughts were about this process, because I'm always interested in like process, process, process. How do people, you know, get to um, the particular conclusions um, and interrogations that they do? Um, and actually, uh, we had mentioned I mentioned this to you offline as a question um, that was, you know, a very much impromptu one from our discussion prior to, you know, hitting the live bit of, on, on the button, um, you know. Because what you just brought up was a great segue to something that's happening in culture today, uh, and, and that's you know Harriet Tubman. Um, and like I said, I, I think I was going to do this mm-hmm. a little later, but you know, uh, as the spirit moves you, as, as they say, and uh, the spirit definitely moved us <laughs> in that direction. And so, can you talk about a bit, um, you know, you know, uh, what maybe would your book? you know, or maybe a 20th century version of your book, 20, 21st century, kind of look at um, in the context of someone like Harriet Tubman, who, um, you know, uh, her actions, you know, within the within the greater trope of a black, uh, the, of a black Avenger uh, 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 trope and, and figure. So I thought that that was an interesting thing that happened. Um, as well. And, um, and for those who might not be aware, uh, there's going to be a new Harriet Tubman uh, biopic coming out November 1st of 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we look at the historical record, um, I think we, we know in some cases, we have names in some cases, but it's just, you know, even from what actually is in on the record, uh, we know that women were involved in every single you know, slave revolt and revolutionary movement in the Americas. Um, 
you know, this should not come as a surprise, but it might come as a surprise if we actually uh, read a historical record without an eye for this, because they're never or very rarely mentioned by name, right? They sort of, they're in the background. Um, and this, again, is why I find, you know, uh, cultural patterns interesting, because they, they bleed out from uh, uh, literature into, into uh, history writing and vice versa, and they sort of, you know, feed themselves, right? So if you never see women, you'll never see women, and you'll never talk about women, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, when, as it relates to what it, I find to be essentially, um, you know, a, a narrative trope, right? The, 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 I, don't, I don't think the Black Avenger is actually real. Uh, it is, you know, it is the way we tell certain stories. Um, I think, you know, there's a reason we never see uh, women or rarely see women in that position. Um, and that reason is both good and bad. Um, the good reason is because, I, you know, um, I think if you were to speak of what women do uh, in these situations, you would have to speak about something else than masculinity, quite simply. If that, that might sound tautological, uh, but there is something about the, the Black Avenger that I think is essentially masculine, is meant to be that way. Uh, what I, you know, I've only seen the trailer and I think you've seen it too. Um, there's much about the trailer that it evokes every, um, other, you know, similar movie you've seen, you know, that a lot of close-ups on, on Harriet Tubman, you know, holding a gun and, and shooting and, and doing military things as well. I, you know, and, and she did in, in real life. And, uh, but you know, there's something about the way this is presented, right? She, she's, you know, she's going to be an action hero. Um, and you know, I don't. Again, I don't, I don't know if I'm being very clear here. Um, we know what she did in real life, but I'm really speaking about representation here, right? There's something about making her out to be in a certain way that is bound to evoke a history of you know representation of of women in movies. Um, and you know, again, we're we're not talking about historical truth here so much as a certain way of representing it. Um, and so to speak back to, to what I think was your original question, um, this is something we see in earnest in the 20th century. Uh, it's not that you don't see it earlier, but that I think it becomes a very self-conscious thing uh, with, with, you know, feminist, you know, revisionism of the record, quite simply. People have to actively go uh, and look for women to find them. They were always there, but then you have to make that effort because they were there, but then sort of, you know, as I mentioned in relation with the um, the, the the Black Avenger, uh, they were sort of silenced. And so in the process of making them speak, I think what we see a lot is sort of speaking against certain tropes, uh, either by sort of recuper- recuperating them or, you know, inverting them or, you know, but, but speaking directly to those cultural tropes. And what I think, you know, when I mentioned Dessa Rose earlier and other texts, or you can think of even black exploitation movies, right? What we see often are sort of a, uh, just, you know, a feminized version of a very similar trope to, to what we've been seeing. Uh, Dessa Rose, I think, does very different things, but it sort of starts that way, right? Uh, I think, personally, what I'd be uh, also interested in, and that Dessa Rose does ultimately, uh, is, well, what, you know, what might we be talking about if that figure was not going for all the things we usually expect for victory on the battlefield and killing, but really for, you know, what would, what would an Avenger look like that actually is there for survival and, and life, you know, rather than, you know, immediate sort of, you know, military, um, 
you know, victory, if that, if that makes sense. And so what, what I'm hoping to see and what I think would happen with that corpus are, you know, alternatives that we might not recognize immediately as uh, vengeance, right? And and probably should not. But, you know, that's sort of a, another long conversation, uh, what's covered and, and uh, what's covered under that term, I guess. Right. And, and, and as well, um, you know, to, to transition back, um, to, I would say probably the most, uh, well-known, um, form of, uh, Black Avengerism, and, and that's the Haitian Revolution. Um, so, mm-hmm. so can you talk to us a bit about, um, the transition, right? Um, how did, how did, um, how did European writers, Right. How how did the Haitian Revolution change how they thought? Right. Transitioning from, you know, the late uh, 18th century into the 19th. What what role did the Haitian Revolution play in not only how they were changed by their thoughts about uh, black Avengerism and also specifically speaking to how, you know, New, how, how Haitians themselves or folks from Saint-Domingue, the transition to being Haitians, how did they personally grapple with the Black Avenger trope? Mm-hmm. Um, so so to, I'm going to try to take this in order. Um, for, of course, of course. I would say for European um, and, you know, uh, European-American writers and thinkers, um, there's a very famous quote at this point. Everybody sort of uh, refers to uh, Michel Rolf Trouillot in Silencing the Past uh, says, you know, the, that the revolution was unthinkable uh, to Europeans, and you know we've we've all glossed this. Uh, who, who who are writing about the Haitian Revolution? Um, I think it's clear in the book that what he means um, is that it's not that they didn't expect a revolt or anything. Is that they and, and the way I understand it anyway is that they did not expect. Or I've been you know so used to to that uh, cultural frame that that I mentioned that they did not expect actual politics, if that makes sense, right? Revolt, revenge, they were ready for it. Uh, but that this would be, um, you know, so articulate, and I use that word uh, purposefully here, uh, was not what they expected, let's say. Um, this was organized. This was, you know, th- these were people. Uh, and so what I think you see around, you know, European treatment of the of the Haitian Revolution is sort of, uh, bewilderment at what's actually happening, but the way they render it is the same way they always rendered that topic. So immediately, those same frames are, re- are sort of, you know, the, the revolution is made to is force fitted into the same old frames. So they need to find the adventure, and so it's Toussaint Louverture, and so and so it's Desalines, and so you know they sort of pull figures that you know they're there, right? They are military leaders. They, they they're not made up, but they they're made to to be. I think. Uh, maybe not more important than they were, but they, you know, everything becomes about them in the same old way. Everything was always about the extraordinary person, right? Um, and so, in this way, somewhat uh, maybe, uh, you know, paradoxically, uh, I think the the Haitian Revolution changes everything, but it changes nothing. Uh, I don't think it fundamentally ch- fundamentally changes the way Europeans write about a black revolt. If anything, I think. It tells them just how crucial it is uh, to, to and, and, you know, this may sound like a giant conspiracy. I don't think, you know, Europeans get together at night and, and discuss this. But I think what, <laughs> what we see happening 
is that they double down on it. Uh, and so, and at this point, again, it sort of merges with a trans in scientific racism that sort of reassert the same thing they've always been saying, right? Uh, for black people in New Americas to do politics is only possible if, you know, someone who's very, very, very special and basically a honorary, a honorary white person to lead them because as a group, they can't do it. Now, the Haitian Revolution just demonstrated the opposite, but the discourse remains the same. So, you know, uh, to talk about European Americans and uh, Europe, European and uh, Europeans and European Americans, I don't think it fundamentally changes the way they discuss those topics. Um, now, uh, if we talk about uh, people of the African diaspora, um, I think we see more interesting things. And in the book, I, I, I speak uh, notably about um, well, the way um, Louverture and Dessaline themselves sort of played with that trope. Um, and later on, I talk about uh, uh, Martin Delaney uh, and his own take on the on, on the trope. Um, I think, and you know, in the examples I used anyway, um, you know, the the issue of literacy and you know, again, I talk about being articulate, uh, you know, no articulate, uh, just with all the the sort of baggage this term comes with. Um, when Toussaint uh, Louverture, when Jean-Jacques Dessalines use the trope, they are very, very much speaking to Europeans. And, you know, they're sort of riffing on it, they're sort of, you know, sampling and remixing, if you will. Um, but this is not, I don't think they need that trope to speak to people in Haiti. Uh, they don't need to because they're the people who actually did the revolution. I, I don't know if that makes sense where I'm going with this. Um, no, I understand. You know, right. One of the ways... Um, you know, this is used during the, the, the Haitian Revolution, just to, to, to uh, go very quickly here. Uh, Europeans sort of start saying very early that Toussaint Louverture basically got his ideas uh, from uh, French philosophers. And, you know, I just want to pause here for a second uh, to imagine the hubris of thinking that slaves need European philosophers to conceive of freedom. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's insane. And yet, this is a story, right? And that is used to this day. You know, you will find um, any, you know, most accounts of Toussaint Louverture's life, and I can guarantee you that they will bring up the fact that apparently he read uh, Renal, and this is how he came, up, you know, to think about freedom. Well, you know, it's this. You know, the only reason we might we still discuss this, I would say, and still take it seriously, is quite literally because it is written, right? It's in print. And so it feeds print culture. Um, part of, you know, to go back to your question, when we're talking about people of the African, African diaspora dealing with this, uh, they quite, I expect, uh, not strictly maybe deal with it in print, but I think this is where you find it. Uh, partly because, of course, if it's oral, you won't necessarily find records of it. But I also think quite deeply that because they don't need it. Uh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you don't need this guy actually to make a revolution. It turns out. Um, so I would say, to me, that's one fundamental difference. And when you see uh, people, you know, of the African diaspora dealing with this, you see them sort of navigating this either because they know they're speaking directly to Europeans, or because they feel like they need if they, you know, if if they're gonna write even for um, for black readers, uh, they need to tweak it. And it's interesting as well because, um, you know, how, uh, 
how the Haitian revolution has been used by people of so many different various uh, uh, allegiances, ideologies, uh, uh, political representations. It, it to me is just always fascinating. Um, not only learning more and more uh, about, um, you know, Haitian studies and, and the history of, you know, like the founding years, I guess. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term to use, uh, 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 formulating uh, Haiti into being. Um, it, it's just really interesting to, to continuously learn about uh, how people, you know, like David Walker and how folks like Martin Delaney and Henry Highland Garnett and, um, and, 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 and even, um, uh, 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 Charlotte Fortin, who was teaching folks, who was teaching children on the sea islands, um, in, in the 1860s during the civil war, teaching, you know, formerly enslaved children about, you know, Toussaint Louverture, like, like that and, mm-hmm. and seeing the different contexts. But then you also kind of see the trope, um, of the black Avenger, you know, go into, uh, American freedom in the 1860s and 70s with the with the Buffalo Soldiers, and that actually is a segue into mm-hmm. my the the final part of you know my my question uh, period. In that, I found one of the most interesting and really thought provoking areas was the Black Avenger and U.S. Empire. Um, and so, can you talk to us about how the uh, uh, Black Avenger? Uh, what was included into the U.S. empire? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, my, my, my comments earlier uh, might have sounded a little ahistorical. You know, you know these things change throughout, right. throughout the years, right? And so um, I was really speaking in the immediate aftermath of the Haitian Revolution and, you know, up until the, the Civil War, basically. But... Um, you know, part of what I, I, I tried to show when we look at the uh, postbellum era and early Jim Crow era, um, and you know what's some considered the, the early years of you know what we what we call now African American literature, um, we have you know the, the same existential issue, right? That how can one be black in the U.S.? Um, it's you know the terms have changed, but it's the same question. Um, and you don't see as much, there's still discourse of, uh, you know, emigration or maybe living in certain areas, et cetera. Uh, but for the most part, it is about, um, you know, being black within these boundaries and, and in what way and, and what, what that might mean. And so I look at texts that are not necessarily very well known, uh, even by, by, uh, literary writer, uh, literary scholars, um, from the 1890s and early uh, early 20th century, where you see the, the very similar figure and very Americanized, right? At that point, you can see how uh, the Black Avenger in those texts, I'm thinking about um, uh, Imperium and Imperial uh, by Sutton Griggs, which is fairly well known at this point. And as we see it by, um, and I always forget his name, Waring, I forget his first name. I want to call him Fred, Robert mm-hmm. Louis Waring. Um, who, um, you know, develop, you know, um, wearing in particular develops a version of the Black Avenger that is basically, um, you know, the Avenger from, of, of the Western. Um, and so he sort of, you know, reclaims Americanness and, and that is Imperial Americanness by, you know, recite, re, re, um, 
you know, shooting, you know, the, 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 the Black Avenger tradition into uh, what are at that point very popular American tropes. And in this way, you, I, what, I, what I argue that, uh, that he is trying to do is sort of create a place for Black people within American imperialism. Right, so this is after uh, the War of eighteen ninety eight against Spain. Um, this is at a time when he indirectly, and then other you know uh, black political figures of the time, much more uh, outwardly, claim that they can be agents for for that mission. Right, as black people, maybe they are as exceptional as Americans think they are, and they can be exceptional before the black world. Right, so they sort of. They do not question separation so much as endorse it with a form of, of black pride, if that makes sense. And so their recycling of the black Avenger figure serves that purpose. Uh, they sort of take a very um, aggressive stance on, on separation, right? And some of those texts sort of uh, imagine uh, an America where some of the states would be reserved for African-Americans. And so they would not be out of the U.S. They would be sort of, you know, part of the U.S., but just it would be the black U.S., right? And things would be okay. Um, they could do what Americans do, uh, but for, you know, the black population of, of the earth, basically. I mean, I'm sort of summarizing widely here, but um, it is, it was, you know, it came as kind of a shock to me, but I believe that is a very strong trend at that time, which is, you know, sort of accept what they feel cannot necessarily be changed fundamentally, um, you see a lot of, you know, that, that a lot of the, the, the race science of the time has actually, if not been accepted, but somewhat made its way into a global culture, into, in, including for those authors, right? So uh, they, don't necessarily, they don't believe in black inferiority, but they believe in the separation of races. And so you see them navigate those issues uh, partly by way of, of, the, of the Black Avenger trope, um, sort of, you know, again, recycled, right? I, I say recycled. Um, because, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier on how, you know, movies lately have sort of, we've seen this figure come back. Uh, it comes back regularly, right? The, the dips and, and uh, you know, times when we don't see Black Avengers as much and then they come back. I think we're in a time where we're going to mm-hmm. see quite a few of them uh, come back again. Uh, this was one of the, the peaks, I guess, um, the, you know, the last one I look at. Uh, and which I think is actually involved also uh, culturally speaking again uh, in you know the, the U.S. invasion of Haiti in 1950. And and with that too, uh, to to and you, and you had broached this um, in your conclusion. Um, can, can you talk to us about you know may, maybe your your particular thoughts or maybe hypothesis of why why now why why uh, and you talk about the upticks and the, and the down downward spirals so what what would you think kind of i guess put your cultural critic hat on um what do you think about this particular time um has been uh, uh f- not, not formative is not the right word but um why why now in the 2010s would you say have we seen so many of of uh of black avenger styled uh, uh films Hmm. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's partly, uh, if not entirely due to, to the overall uh, political climate, um, you know, that something 
interesting. I mean, we had Black Lives Matter uh, before uh, you know the uh, white supremacist offensive became became very clear. Uh, but the truth is, I think those two things are not separate, right? Um, that, um, I was reading recently um, something, uh, somebody was writing about um, novels from the late 60s, uh, you know, this book who sat by the door that was also turned into a movie, a Sam Greenlee novel, um, John A. Williams's Sons of Darkness, Sons of Light. That's one of my favorite. I'm, I was the <laughs> one talking about that one. Uh, Chester Hines' Plan B, you know, all novels of, you know, that were all written within, originally within three years of each other, late 60s, uh, you know, the, during the Black Power movement. And every single one considers the possibility of the black of a Black revolution in the U.S. Uh, every single one also, the, uh, maybe not Plan B. No, I think Plan B as well. Uh, starts with a scene that will sound familiar to every single one of us. A young black man is shot by a cop for no reason. And this is, you know, the the, the straw that breaks the camel back, right? If something happens, you know, I'm not going to uh, spoil the, the, the plots of those novels for people who might want to read them, and they should. Um, but, you know, ev- they all look at the same thing. Now, we've all seen those things a lot, uh, lately, and I think maybe that's also part of it, right? Not so much that this is new, but that we've got to see those things in a new way, and and, and crassly, quite literally, through YouTube, through videos, right? Things that we knew existed, or maybe easily forgot existed, and that for the past you know decade or so have been thrust in our faces in ways that are you know relatively novel. Uh, I think you know I. I don't want to, you know, diagnose this. I think all those things participate in, in the same movement. I think, you know, the coming, you know, the sort of return of the Black Avenger, I think might be related um, to this as well, right? Culturally speaking, um, we have, you know, maybe, you know, I hesitate to call it entirely new, but there's something slightly novel. Again, that, that might be a crass word to use here, but about the way we consider those things. I think a lot of us are aware that, these are trends that are, you know, hundreds of years old at this point. You know, this is not new, but the novelty of the way we get to it, I think, creates its own, uh, at least participates in creating its own new cultural wave. So I think those things are related and might explain part of why we're seeing a, a return of the, the Black Avenger. And it's a very interesting time indeed, right? So you can talk about uh, Django, you can talk about Birth of a Nation, you can talk about um, Black Panther, you know, and, and, you know, the list goes on. Oh, and, and I was gonna say, and Harriet Tubman, you know, to add to the list as well. And right. And, and that one is in the, the second to last month of, uh, of the decade too. Right. So like, you can really literally see from like, you know, start to, 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 to finish really too. Um, and so in the, in the short amount of time that we have left with you, um, can you talk to us a bit about, right? So we know, you know, your book just got published and everything, but, you know, us at the New Books and African American Studies uh, podcast channel, we, you know, we get a little greedy sometimes. We want to know when we can bring our authors back on to be able to, uh, you know, publicize their, their work. So um, is, is there anything uh, that you're cooking up uh, for us to be fed in the next uh, bit of c- couple years? So I, I can speak uh, about, I think, I think I'm allowed to speak about um, the, the big project I was part of um, that we just recently finally <laughs> turned in uh, to, to editors. Uh, this is a huge uh, anthology of Haitian uh, revolutionary fiction uh, ran by uh, Marlena Dow, 
um, and I'm a co-editor along with uh, Marion Rohrleitner. Uh, and so it's going to be a very big volume looking at all sorts of fiction from all over the place um, about about the Haitian Revolution. So this is really exciting. I'm really excited about this. Uh, as for uh, more personal projects, um, I have to say I'm, I'm taking it a little bit easy for now, but I do have ideas. Uh, two mm-hmm. of them being, and they're really in, in um, early stages. Uh, one of them I'm very interested in looking at um, at uh, Black Freemasonry, um, but here also uh, internationally, and this might sound, um, you know, to go uh, to go without saying, um, but from a lot of what I've seen tends to look at Freemasonry within um, within national boundaries, right? So we know a lot about uh, the Prince Hall Masons. Uh, we know a lot about, uh, say, you know, Haitian Masons, but not necessarily the way groups of black Freemasons might have connected. And so that's something I've, you know, I, coming across, you know, bits and pieces here studying Haiti, notably, uh, that's something that's been very intriguing to me. Uh, and it remains intriguing. I don't know how far this is going to go, if this is going to be articles or a book, but that, that's one thing I'm looking into. Um, and I have another project that's really, uh, you know, just sort of brewing. Um, and that is looking at, uh, fictions of um, uh, of countries without black people, if that hmm. makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, and I don't mean uh, again fictional countries, right? The visions of of future America, visions of you know such and such place where, for different reasons, uh, people of color have somehow disappeared. Um, and so, so, uh, I, you know, we, we talk about TV, um, you know, I'm thinking, for example, uh, man in the high castle. I don't know if you, mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm, watched yep, this yep. at all. Um, the novel is oh, fairly yeah. similar, right? The, the premise is the same. Uh, that's just one example among many, but that's another thing I've been very intrigued about. Um, and then I have, uh, I have ideas about, it, but we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Uh, you'll be the first to know if it goes in <laughs> Hey, no, and that's awesome. And and uh, go to your to to go to your Freemasonry uh, point. You know, I found out I had um, uh, Dr. Vanessa Valdez on um, the program uh, mm-hmm. last year, and uh, found out that you know Schomburg was uh, a Freemason as well in New York. Wow. And, and and so you know, and, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, there's a group of Black Cubans um, as well, and, and such in New York in the uh, late. 19th early 20th century mm-hmm. so 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 it's just like really um in spaces and places that you don't necessarily know like i worked exactly. um in, in um at boston african-american national historic site in in the city of boston of course and you know so you learn about prince hall masonry and i would on the bus go by uh the present day you know founding uh what they would call like a i guess one of the main you know prince hall uh, spaces in, in, in the city of Boston or in Roxbury. Mm-hmm. And so it's so like, I, I would see it all the time. So it kind of just was, I guess, part of like the, part of like the scenery, part of the background. Uh, but to see it in yes. other places to me is always interesting. So to hear about um, your work um, and, and the various projects that you have coming out, I'm like, well, my friend, I hope that you're getting a little bit of sleep. Hope you're drinking a little water, get a little <laughs> exercise, um, because uh, we definitely want to keep you healthy um, uh, <laughs> as, as you uh, as as you continue to do your work and rise from assistant professor to associate professor. Wow. So, congratulations yes. on that. Thank you very much. 
Very good. And so, you know, and and so, you know, once again, it has been a pleasure to have you on the program. And, um, you know, it's going to be it's just exciting to see your work and it. And it was exciting to actually meet you uh, officially at the uh, roundtable at uh, the African-American Intellectual Intellectual History Society's um, uh, roundtable on uh, the Commonwealth from Julius Scott. Uh, which was published mm-hmm. in the same year uh, formerly as yours. And so, um, you know, great to actually get to meet you and, you know, say, hey, you know, I'd love to have you on the program. And clearly based upon us talking for over uh, over 56 minutes, it happened. <laughs> yes. uh, an amazing conference, by the way, uh, AIHS. I would recommend it to anyone alive. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, the next conference is going to be, I believe, March 5th and 6th of 2020 at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, So it's going to be in a a warm weather place again. It was been in Boston and and, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan for the last couple of years. So uh, uh, now we're now we're going to be warm in March. Hopefully we don't know. (laughs) Texas can Texas can turn real quick. We know it's might not be politically, but we know weather-wise, it's probably a better, it's probably a better uh, assumption of a change, shall we say? Until until further notice, you know, twenty twenty might be that further notice, but that's another uh, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, man. So once again, thank you so much, folks. Um, we've had the pleasure of having. Uh, Associate Professor of English at the University of Connecticut at Stanford. Didn't put that in before. University of Connecticut at Stanford. Uh, the the phenomenal, the phenomenal Dr. Gregory Pirat uh, for his amazing, amazing new book published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press titled The Black Avenger in Atlantic Culture. And I'm your host, Adam McNeil. And once again, please come back, subscribe, show us some love, you know, Rate us, review us on your various podcast uh, platforms at which you you consume the content, and uh, we, you know we want to know how we're doing. We want to know how you're liking um, the, uh, the the content that we're bringing to to bear for y'all to listen to. And so, um, once again, folks, I'm Adam McNeil from New Books in African American Studies. Over and out. Thanks for.